Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Smartcast and Najahi Events. More about our incredible sponsors later. Okay, today's guest, he's a pretty outspoken bloke, if I'm honest with you, and that's why I like him. He has millions and millions of followers all over the world. But let's go through an intro just so you know who you're dealing with here. James Smith is the world's fastest growing online personal trainer. Honest unapologetic and outspoken yet erudite authentic and endlessly passionate about exposing the toxic myths within the diet culture and committed to helping people reach their goals and make positive change for good james is a two-time best-selling author just released his third book now how to be confident where he guides us to master our true ambitions realize our genuine strengths and achieve the life we want okay luckily with his candid no-nonsense advice and experience and passion james is here to lead the way and we've got even better news because james is here in town in dubai for dubai active uh, the event is hosting an exclusive meet and greet with him as well he's first in the middle east of his tour okay for james smith live the c word and that's on the 28th of october so i want you all to go and get tickets for that because that will be fantastic Right, let's get stuck into the podcast. Cue the music and we'll get on with it. Organizations such as Smartcast, who are solving the problem of food security in the world, have supported this podcast because they believe in the mission that I'm on. When you understand the work that they do at trying to solve the problem with this massive population growth we've been having over the years and providing a way of bringing food safely to everybody, it really is something I admire. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Well, James, thank you so much for coming to join us today. It's fascinating to have you on here because you really are somebody that I I resonate with because I think I think a lot like you. Maybe I'm not quite as brave as you to stand behind the kind of things you stand behind and call what I would regard as the bullshit out in many respects. So for people here in Dubai that are going to be meeting you very soon because you're coming over to visit us, just tell me a little bit more about where you're from, what you do, and how on earth you got into being this truly world-renowned almost with your social media following personal trainer that just says it as it is. Yeah, I mean, humble beginnings on the gym floor. Spent nearly four years doing one-to-one sessions. And in my head, the, the highest level, I was like, you know what? One day I might live in Dubai because it's the only place I might get £100 an hour for PT. So, you know, that was the that was the highest place I was thinking of going. I was like, I'll learn my trade on the gym floor. But before getting there, I was thinking, you know, where everyone else looks to investments in like bricks and mortar, mortgages, whatever, to me, it was a social media strategy. Where I was like, if I pay in with a bit of helpful content every day, in 10 years time, I may not have a house, but I might have several thousand people that might buy a book. So that social media strategy kind of got a bit carried away, if I'm honest. I never, I said no to my first online client who actually was someone who lived in Dubai. And I emailed him back saying, it's a long way to come for a consultation. And um, yeah, just just from there, things have kind of evolved. And uh, I'm still coaching. Probably the majority of my income comes from an online PT app. And now I'm fortunate enough to have multiple revenue streams that all stem from education. So whether it's books, whether it's my online PT or whether it's talks that people attend. So it's kind of a, a bit of a niche uh, route where, I'm, you know, I think I must be one of the only people with over a million followers on a couple of social media platforms who's never done a paid post. Interesting. Now, there's a lot of personal trainers out there that that from what I see, because I, I go every morning, I go five days a week to the gym, I train at 5am every day with a personal trainer guy I've got a great relationship with. But I don't think personal trainers have got a bloody clue, you excluded how to market what they do. Because there's not you know, I'm 179 centimetres, I'm 85 kilos, I'm you know, I'm 52 years old, I'm not thin, I'm not fat, I'm just a little bit, I've got a couple of muffin tops on the side, I go and train every day, I try and watch what I eat, but I'm not perfect. But when I see these people posting their kind of like their perfect bodies, their perfect images, it doesn't motivate me to want to work with them, it almost intimidates me a little bit not to want to be around them. What, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, unfortunately, I think that a lot of people are personal trainers because of the way they look. 
And that's a very strange kind of outcome to have in any career path. So uh, let's say that there's a small population of people that don't have to work very hard to be in good shape or a small group of people that have values that really stem surrounding how they look, whether it's insecurities or values or whatever it is. Now, those people are then pushed into a career path of being a PT, where being a PT or a good coach really stems around empathy, uh, wanting to help people, having a good ability to coach people. And I think that the, the fitness people that we see on social media that take pictures of their lunch and their tops off and whatever are kind of a very small percentile of people that don't really have anything in common with the people they need to help. And for myself, one from a coaching standpoint, I started coaching when I was, I was about 12 years old. I helped uh, other kids. I did my swimming qualification to teach young kids how to swim. Then when I was at college, I did sports coaching. It was the only thing that I could do. So I did rugby, football, everything I could. So then by the time I did get lost in the corporate world and I came into coaching, I knew how to kind of help people. And a lot of people that are caught up with how they look and want to do physique shows and competing or whatever, there's been like a muddied water between it and they don't realize that they're alienating uh, the people they're trying to help. I had a conversation with some PTs this week where I said, on your PT gym board, the you know you go into a gym, you see like ten different personal trainers. I said, number one, make sure that you're you don't have your top off. Like you having your top off on a professional photo, it may look good and get you some double taps on social media, but it's not going to bring a prospect further down the the funnel towards having you as a client. And I said, second of all, stop talking about yourself and start talking about how you can help your client. In my gym, there was 10 PTs and everyone spoke about swimming for county and what accolades they did and how many times they competed. Mine just said, I help people lose fat. And if they want to build muscle, I help them build muscle. It was one sentence, it almost looked ridiculous amongst the rest of the PT board. And like you say, marketing is something that I, I didn't even realize that I was quite good at until I realized how bad everyone else was at it. And it sounds really crass to say this, but when I was younger, especially as like an 18, 19 year old, all I wanted to do was get laid. And so many of the lessons in marketing stem from actually wanting to get laid. That's how, that's the very first sales funnel that I ever knew about. So applying that to business and being a bit more savvy with that really did help me. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's one of the first lessons I teach uh, any business owner when it comes to marketing. See, the question I suppose nowadays is it, it, what's more important, you know, being able to market yourself, your product and your services or being good at it. And I think if you can be both perfect and if you can be good at marketing, no matter, I'm not talking about being PT here in anything, you know, is Coca-Cola better than Pepsi? Well, it's definitely marketed better, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the, the percentage of people buying Coke, no one says, let's go for a Pepsi, do they? Um and so you see, see those types of people, uh, also those types of industries are, are smart marketers. They may not always have the best product. Why is it though, you know, I, I literally live this because I, you know, people say to me, oh, you get up at 4.30 every day, you go to the gym at five. And I'm like, yeah, but it's what I do. It's what I do every day. You know, you're not suggesting everybody else does it, but I find it hard to lose weight. Um, and, and I'm intimidated when people talk in a language around losing weight and, and all of this kind of like technical stuff with um, biohacking and, and, and all of these, I mean, the amount of people that have come in and told me I need to take these injections and that injections, and I don't mean steroids or anything. I mean, you know, um, what's the stuff? You have to you help me out here with some of the stuff. You've got um, science, you've got peptides, you've Yeah, peptides, that's it. Pep peptides and testosterone and stuff. And I'm like, why do I really need to take this? You know, I'm okay. I mean, I don't, I don't drink, you know, I don't, I don't go out late at night. I'm 52. I'm, I'm relatively healthy. I think that the first question that people need to ask themselves or their clients is, are you happy? And then we can work back from that. Because if you've got a balanced lifestyle, you might not be getting the phone ringing anytime soon to go on the front cover of Men's Health. But if you've got these pillars of, of your life, whether it's sobriety, business, you've probably got a lot of things. If you're like me, business on itself, I'm a bit under the weather today. It's why my voice is a bit deep. But I've worked harder today than any other day because it's filled my quota of happiness. <laughs> so where I don't feel 100%, I'm actually doing more work than usual. And it sounds like such a weird thing. So if you're someone that's getting enough you know, happiness, that's fine. I think the real question is, if someone says, no, I'm not happy, and we look as to why it is, they go, oh, I don't feel good with my top off, I've got low mood, all of these things, then we can start to address with those things. But it's annoying that people live in this world where they're like, well, we need to make you perfect. When I actually disagree with that, I think we just need to make people happy. 
uh, you know, you might hear them. There's, there's a thin wall between me and my parents, and my parents have never stepped foot in a gym in their life. They will pop open a bottle of wine about midday, and they'll just happily drink up until dinner. Now, I'm not going to put my fitness values on them because they're happy. Now, if they said to me, son, we're not happy, we need help, then I might try and clean their life up. But yeah, it's it's almost like quite a pushy industry where people are like, you need to fast, you need to give up breakfast, you need to stop having coffee, you need to have a pre-workout. And you're like, well, like, we're all very different and different journeys in life. Don't try and tie everyone with the same brush. Any any time I've ever tried to make a science out of what I am doing myself and go to the doctors and get the blood tests and everything else and all this information comes back to me, what am I allergic to, what am I not allergic to, and, and DNA testing and stuff, it always comes back as a quite convoluted information, which becomes a little bit overwhelming. And the only thing that ever seems to have worked for me is to stop shoveling shit in my face. And if I do less of that, then invariably the muffin tops get a little bit smaller. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, myself, I go through peaks and troughs where I lose my routine when I'm at home. And also, I'm worked a bit harder because I'm back in the UK. So I always see like a trifecta of business, relationships and physique. And you can only really have two that you can focus on at the same time. So I'm always quite happy to let my physique go. Someone be like, Oh, James, you put on a few kg. I'm like, Yeah, but I've been putting out two YouTube videos a day for the last month, or you know, whatever it is. Oh, I've done talk, I've done the tours. And yeah, I think that people just need to be more realistic with it. There are many more metrics to so many of the things we do. And like you say, some of the obvious stuff, when I get my routine back, I'll probably eat smarter, have takeout less. The, you know, for me, almost when I'm staying with my parents, I know that I, can, I have no control over what's for dinner. So that doesn't make me want to eat well at lunch. Because if my mum brings out toad in the hole or something that's one of my favorite foods at dinner, then I'm, I'm done for. So I, I kind of dial back on that and just put my energy into other places. Toad in the hole, man. A lot of people listening won't know what on earth that is, but I haven't heard that for years. I love toad in the hole. Gosh, toad in the yeah, hole, so, man. Uh, this was something that I said, uh, uh, my girlfriend's Australian. I spend a lot of time in Australia. And uh, she's like, what, what food do you miss from home? I was like, oh, toad in the hole. And she's like, what? So for anyone <laughs> listening that doesn't know, it's like Yorkshire pudding batter with sausages in it and you have it with mashed potato and gravy. So I come home one night from training and she's there YouTubing how to make it. And, you know, the, if someone's bringing that out in the evening, you can say, James, you can stick to your diet or toad in the hole. I'm I'm not sticking to my diet. No way. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to get messages after this. You eat that? What, that batter with a sausage in? People seem to think like, are oh, you a PT? This must. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm a normal person. I go through the normal cyclical bouts. I actually go through the exact same problems that everyone else does, you know, and I struggle with food, I struggle with cravings, I overeat all the time. I have this thing where I can't just stop eating when I'm full. I have to get to the point that I'm a little bit uncomfortable. So that I think is why some people resonate with me because I'm literally the exact same person as most of my clients. Yes. And I think, I think yeah, that's why a lot of us resonate with you. You seem to, I mean, what is the one that makes me laugh a lot? I love the one with the lemon juice. That that one cracks me up. When you've, I don't know how long ago you made that one with someone putting lemon juice in water in the morning. <laughs> you just like three drops of lemon. What kind of a difference is that going to make to your life? But calling them out, I think, is brilliant. And being, you know, there's an element of satire in there. And, and for sure, you have some form of strategy, which we'll probably talk about in a little while in terms of how you market. But do you call them out because it makes you angry? Do you get frustrated with a lot of this nonsense that's out there? Is that what's compelled you to even start calling people out or, or calling um, certain processes out? Yeah, I mean, if we rewind 10 years, maybe even a bit more, I bought a, a DVD set called The Insanity Workout, where it was like a sleeve of DVDs and I put them in and I did the workouts and nothing happened. And I was working hard. I was doing the high knees and the mountain climbers. And like afterwards, a month later, no progress because I didn't change any of my diet. I just was doing more hit exercise. I, you know, I was deflated and I was like, I've just, I didn't have a lot of money then. I've just spent like 80 quid, which is a lot of money for a student back then on this shit. And what I would have done to have someone snap me out of it and almost slap me in the face with the reality like, and I, I think this all the time. There are times actually where someone maybe even three years ago said to me, oh, you, you should probably work on your YouTube a bit more, let's say, just out of context. And I, I, it kind of fell on deaf ears. But if someone sat me down and really drilled it into me that I wasn't doing the work and that it wasn't the algorithm, it wasn't anything else, it was the fact I was being fucking lazy and I wasn't putting the work into the places that I needed it to, 
I would have a completely different channel than what I'd have today. So even in my own personal life now, I kind of wish there was someone in my life that just told me how it was and snapped me out of this woe and like, you know, this reality of, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. So now I almost tried to be the person I wish I could have had 10 years ago. It's, it reminds me of the old black and white movies years ago where there'd be the Humphrey Bogart and, and the woman and she'd be screaming hysterically and he'd slap her in the face. And as he'd slap her in the face, she'd go, <gasps> and it's almost like he'd change her state in that second with that one slap in the face. I know that's not what you can do nowadays, but it's that, that slap to change someone's state is what people often need because they just get into a groove and they go into repetition of that groove. And, you know, do, I mean, would you agree with me about the, the the conscious and the subconscious? I mean, the subconscious wants it's a risk management device. It wants us to lay on the sofa, put the Cheetos on our chest and the remote control and and watch TV and don't take any risks and don't do anything that might be uncomfortable. Yeah, there's a, an adage from like a story, probably playing rugby about five, six years ago. I, I got dropped out of the blue middle of the season and I went to my rugby coach and I said to him, why have I been dropped? And he looked at me and he goes, mate, you, you played terrible at the weekend. He goes, I can't believe you played that bad and missed that many tackles with your parents watching. And at the time that hurt, that was like the worst thing in my mind he could have said. But come the next week on Tuesday, I was at training early. I wasn't pissing around. I wasn't distracting anyone. I made my tackles, I hit my rucks, I went home. And the most dangerous thing that could have happened then was to him to have protected my feelings and just told me, oh, Smithy, mate, it's a player rotation. If he had lied to me or spoken to me with my feelings at the forefront of what's important, I wouldn't have come with the same attitude and got my position back in the team. So mm. there's this, everyone out there is like, hey, babe, you're beautiful, you can do this. And I was like, yeah, maybe there are coaches that need to be that way. But I'm only talking to people that need to be spoken to like I need to be spoken to. I need to be torn down a peg to really listen because I'm stubborn. And there are a lot of stubborn people out there that need help. So it is definitely a, a, an, it's an objective of mine to talk to people that way. And it also is it's polarizing and it kind of gives you your own identity in that space as well. And the best thing is, this is the thing that most people don't understand. If they don't like that approach. They don't have to buy into it. Okay. They're at schools we've seen over the last, I don't know, decade maybe, fourth, fifth and sixth place meaning something playing sport for fun, winning isn't everything, you know, just enjoy it and have fun with it. And to me, that doesn't teach kids what it's going to be like in the real world about how they're going to have to face the facts. I'll give you a great example. My eldest has just finished university in July. She's a graphic design graduate. She's out applying for jobs. And I know for sure she's not going to get the first job that she wants. And she probably won't get the first five jobs that she wants. If she doesn't understand that element of rejection will hit her and hurt her quite badly, you know, but if she knows that you've got to be the best to be able to get it and you understand that rejection is part of, of the journey, then you can deal with it much better. But when you see kids at school, it's like, well, everyone's a winner. You know, here's a trophy for coming last type of thing. Or here's a certificate just because you contributed or just because you showed up. That doesn't seem to, to, to sit well with me. How do you feel about that? So when I was younger, I used to work in shopping centers. Uh, the people that stop you to try and sell you something. I was working for Love Film, who kind of took the market after Blockbuster, where you got posted DVDs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I was in their sales team. I got seven pounds for a sale. So if I managed to stop you and, you know, cultivate you into the position of wanting to convert from Blockbuster to Love Film, I got seven pounds. And it'd probably take about 90 minutes to make each sale. So I was probably getting five pounds an hour. And I would get rejected constantly, which set me up better for then doing door-to-door -door sales for NPower when I was 21. So I got a good grasp of rejection and failure. And one of the first parts of my talk is telling people about uh, the utility of failure because failure teaches us how not to do it, but also improves our competency. Every time we fail or get rejected at something, it makes us better. Also, not only that, losing is a very powerful tool. Uh, it should be gut-wrenching, it should be painful, it should really affect your mood, especially one thing that probably wasn't catered for, I didn't know this till I was probably 26, is how much of a hyper-competitive person I am. It was almost suppressed out of me. I'm creative and hyper-competitive, and I didn't know until nearly quarter of a century into my life. So uh, one thing I found is that at school, you're kind of shunned for creativity, and also in the workplace. If you're on a starting salary of 20,000 pounds a year, they don't want you to be creative. They want you to hit the phones or to, you know, do your bloody job. So 
there's those things that people don't recognize at school but also i don't like the fact that the reason they're giving everyone prizes is because they don't want to see sad kids or see kids upset but that's the very thing they almost need because if you get given gratification for all of your efforts like you say that's not the real world you need things to fall on their ass you need to get beaten this is another reason that i'm a wild advocate of brazilian jiu-jitsu and i don't know if you've ever done it yourself no never done it so uh it's one place in the world where money followers fame status can't protect you and no matter it's it's on me if i go and compete and i lose there's nowhere there's no one to blame that's on me the person was better than me i lost and uh there's no trophies for oh well done mate or anything like that and it's a super respectful martial art where there's no striking or kicking either it's very much like chess and it, it worries me that we're breeding almost a soft generation of people where we're more worried about people's feelings and their developments i think that's quite a worrying place to be in how does someone with your kind of platform address something like that though how could you make a difference to that problem because to me it make it just makes me angry because I just, I just want, I, I want my kids to be ready and prepared to go out into the world and face what they've got to face and make the most of it, you know, and deal with whatever comes their way. I'll, I'll give you an example. When I first started work, my job was in, in London, in the city, in EC3. I was selling office equipment. I had to make 100 cold calls a day, every day. But my boss said to me on the first day of work, he said, make 100 cold calls and go and find me 100 people to say no. And I was like, what? He's like, go and find 100 no's. And so I went back at the end of the day, gave me a couple of high fives. Well done, son. See you tomorrow. Day two, go and get 100 no's. I did that exactly what he said. Felt a bit weird, but I did what I was told. And day three, he said, get 99 no's today. I want one yes. But what he was teaching me to understand is that you need rejection to find success. You need rejection to find acceptance. And so if you start to see that rejection is a really important part of getting somewhere, then you'll deal with it much better. And I thought that was such a critically important skill to teach me at the age of 18 or 19 or whatever I was at that time. So that then for the rest of my life, rejection has never really impacted me. If you say no, you say no. So what? Come see, come say, you know. But for my daughters, I want them to understand, you're going to get the door shut in your face. You're going to get people to say no. Guess what? That's part of life. There's um, there's two lessons I learned from a manager at NPAL. I've never had the chance to thank him either because I can't even remember his name. But the first one was I said to him, I didn't get a sale. And he goes, why? I said, they could only save five pounds a month. He goes, that's 60 pounds a year. And I was like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have framed it as five pounds a month. I should have framed it as 60 pounds a year. And then uh, I called him up because I wanted to quit. I said, it was November. I was in Gloucester. My postcode is GL1. I was like, I don't want to be doing this. And he gets out his laptop and he goes, mate, he goes, you get a sale in every hundred doors. He goes, that's really impressive. And not to mention some doors I wouldn't knock on because I just didn't like the look of them. I'd go there, I'd look at the front of the house and I'd be like, your bins are out. No one else's bins are out. I'm not knocking on your door because I doubt I'm getting a sale from someone that hasn't even done their flipping bins. So then when he put it that way, similar to what you said, knock on a hundred doors, you make a sale. He said, how many sales do you need for today? I was like three. He's like, knock on 300 more doors and put the phone down on me. And exactly that and that's what i've tried to instill in my latest book how to be confident saying you know that's that's what you should be practicing and there's something that i read in a tim ferris book where he gets people to ask for 10 percent off a coffee not because you'll get 10 percent off the coffee because you will look like an idiot in front of everyone and you will not get what you want and we're, we're losing touch with these kind of practices especially in the dating world as well where so many people are worried about talking to other people or approaching them or asking them out I mean, if you're polite and chivalrous as a young man and you ask someone out and they have a boyfriend or they lie about having a boyfriend, you know, that's still a huge compliment for people. For some reason, we've degraded the ability to see the upside of these things. And now we only play the downsides into our mind. And it is a worrying thing, like you say, about having kids. In some respects, there is part of me that goes, maybe let's not help everyone else. Then our kids can be super achievers. <laughs> but then in the same respect, you need innovative and confident people. Otherwise, the world is not going to get better. And there's a, I'm sure you're aware of uh, the availability bias where the information available to us paints a picture of the reality of the world, such as when I go to Bondi Beach and I swim, everyone goes, be careful of sharks. I'm like, I'm way more likely to drown than I am from sharks. You know, it's just the news they listen to. But if you don't have confident people or your daughter doesn't have confident friends, that's going to degrade and negate her levels of confidence in the world itself. So it is, it is a worrying thing. And it doesn't look like it's getting any better, does it? 
No, it doesn't. It feels like it's getting worse. I want to talk about your book in a second, but let's maybe give some people some examples here because um, of, of how, how you go and make it. I mean, all of the personal trainers out there will be looking at you, but not just personal trainers, people that would love to have a large following, have an audience that they can talk to, people that they can uh, impact with their, their, their stories or, or whatever products or services they may want to market. How long did it take you before anyone really took notice of the social media content you were creating? You would have thought I was insane for some of the first years. And I, I genuinely, this is one of my favorite things to tell people. My first year of posting every day on Facebook, because Facebook was before Instagram about 10 yeah. years ago. I did 800 followers in my first year, not to mention people that were my friends that joined out of sympathy. And <laughs> at this point, Anyone that liked my post, I would go through the likes manually and request every single person to like the page. Then my second year, I got 2,000. So it was another 1,200. So you're looking at two years of work every day outside of PT and I'm at 2,000 followers. And I remember I was buzzing because I had more followers than my rugby club. And then when we move on from there, we probably get to four years to get to 10,000 on Instagram. There was a bit of a lag because I realized... I, I used to, people say, you need a business Instagram. I was like, hey, I'm a Facebook kind of guy. It was a bullshit excuse. I listened to one of Gary Vee's uh, books. I think I was listening to Crush It. Yeah. And I sat there and I was like, I'm just being lazy. So I started my business Instagram. But let's call it four years to 10,000. At three and a half years in, hi, James, you've been posting every day on social media. Have you made any money? I'd say no. And I was about nine months into my email marketing campaigns and I'd not made one sale. And I was doing my emails daily. So people could have sat there at that point and gone, mate, you're emailing people, you're not making any sales, you're posting on social media every day, you're not making money. Then four years later, after that, I hit a million followers and three seven-figure businesses. So like one example I used, I think I said this to my dad uh, the other day, was a rocket uses 90% of its fuel in like the first 10% of the journey. And that's the thing that people overlook, like, I look back now at those early days and I go, wow, that guy, that guy was hustling. <laughs> that guy was, that guy maybe was insane. Um, but yeah, it, I was probably paddling my legs underwater a little bit harder then than I sometimes do now because I had to work full time as a PT whilst I was doing that. Mm. And yeah, it was, it was one of those things where it, it was years, it was years. And it annoys me that I probably am guilty of this when I look at some fit people and I go, oh, it's, you know, I, I joke about saying these people put in minimal work and some fit people should turn around and go, fuck you, James. They go, I worked harder than you. I sacrificed harder than you. And you know what? I'd apologize to them and go, sorry, I made the assumption. But people make that same assumption for myself. And I'm sure you've had this over the years where when someone's like, oh, so what was your video that went viral? What was your, you know, what was the thing that, and you, your first reaction is to want to say, fuck you. It was the six years of having a twitch in my eye every morning. <laughs> and um, yeah, the, if people aren't willing to do an amount of work where people would think they were insane, then uh, they're probably not doing enough that they need to, to break through or, or get into outer orbit. Okay. But let's let, uh, as you went through that, so 800 followers, then 2000 followers, then it slowly grew up to 10,000 on Instagram. <laughs> During that journey, was there any part of you that said, sod this for a game of soldiers, this is never going to work? Yeah, there were some days I'd post three videos or like I'd do a, a blog on WordPress that was like, what's better out, potato or sweet potato? I'd do a Facebook Live, <laughs> then I'd do a really good meme. And I would, I'd wake up the next morning. And if I got like six followers overnight, I'd be like, I'm doing well. That was a good post. But to wake up to a red minus two, I was like, fuck, yesterday's the hardest I've ever tried and I lost followers. So there was times like that. Uh, players at my rugby club used to take the piss out of me. They said, oh, Smithy, oh, can we have sweet potato? You know, like, and I'm, I'm 20, probably 25, 26 at this point, getting ripped into by that. There were quite a few days where I definitely thought, fuck this. Um, the main one actually was uh, where I went to Sydney and I started, I, I, probably at five, 6,000 followers, sent an email. Imagine this, right? For 10 months, I was trying to sell like an online program or like a, a, a one-off purchase, PDF, whatever it was. The one email I sent saying, do you want to do online coaching with me? Which was much more expensive. I got 10 clients from an email that were paying me 50 pounds a week. So when I went to Australia as an online coach, which by the way, I kind of made up. They were like, what is it? I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I'll give you a workout <laughs> plan and we'll chat every day on WhatsApp. 
and these people would voice note me like they were their friends. And um, when I got into the gym in Sydney, it was a much more competitive space, but I'd had one foot in the water online. And when you're making 500 pounds a week, just chatting to people on WhatsApp and looking at the videos of their squats, suddenly prospecting on the gym floor was much more difficult. And Darren, one of my best friends, was a PT in Sydney at the time. And I remember him looking at me. I was prospecting all over the floor. PTs were getting annoyed at me because I was chatting to their clients. And one day he looked at me and he was like, what are you doing here? He was like, why are you trying to get into the gym? We're all trying to get out of it. And I hadn't worked in a gym long enough to realize that's what other PTs were doing. Their, their ambitions were to have a, a career that was outside of the four walls. Mine was to give up online coaching to get back in. <laughs> and I was, I was very fortunate that that time in the gym kind of, I was very demoralized from that because there was 32 personal trainers in my gym in Sydney and no one was particularly nice to me. I didn't have any friends. I was traveling on my own. There was only one person that was actually kind to me on the first week because everyone dog eat dog doing their own thing. Mm. And I remember nearly having like a little breakdown where I was like, I can't do this. It was like one of my ultimate failures as a PT, but that's what stemmed me to really hit social media because I joined the gym in February and I quit the gym in May. And once I'd kind of taken off a bit, I was like, I can't slow down because I can't go back to that gym. Hmm. That's a strong, strong emotion, isn't it? That you feel with that kind of story behind it. Tell me when you, when you look at your, your, when you first, you had your first kind of like I'm winning moment, how far into your journey were you? You know, there was that, you know, cause I've had these over the years. It's, they've, they've been little wins. I look back on them now and they're insignificant, but in that moment it was like, yes. Okay. I've got this. I've got this. Is there any moments you've had? Yeah, so uh, one of my really good friends is called Lucy Lord, and she literally was a friend from university. And when I got to Sydney, she'd always have my back, and she baked me a big cake when I when I hit ten thousand followers. And we sat there like we fucking made it because she'd been reading my vlogs, she'd been sharing them since the very first one about sweet potato. She'd been there since the beginning. She's now uh, two times best-selling author, selling cookbooks and stuff. So she's really developing her business at the side now, which is cool. But. I remember I had to join a franchise to join the gym. He was a sales guy. He was like, you know, and he gave me this massive piece of paper that I had to put on my wall and I had to write down things I was going to accomplish for the year, which is really not my kind of vibe. But I wrote on it just to fill it up. I was like, I'm going to do seminars in England and Australia. And I don't know why I wrote that, but now I had to do it. And then on it, I also had to write down what I made every month. So I remember April 2017, I did like 13,000 Australian dollars. So it's like, seven thousand pounds which is a lot for an online coach at this point but then the next month i wrote down what i'd done and it was about the same amount but it was a hundred dollars less and i remember sitting there on the edge of my bed and going fuck i was like this isn't good like i've made a hundred dollars less than i did the month before and i took that really personally uh-huh. i never really looked at my finances and i remember checking it the next month and it went from like fourteen thousand to like twenty eight thousand and I sat there and I looked at my friend Lucy and I was like, I've just made 12,000 pounds in a month. And she looks at me and she goes, you're going to be a millionaire. And I remember being like, no, nah. I was like, I can't believe it. She believed it before I believed it. And then when I kind of really got to terms with that, there was like pride. There was being proud, but like, it was only a small significant amount of money, but I quite liked the fact that there was that dip. And then I saw from that, the reaction I had to feeling disappointed made me make more money. And I thought about it. I didn't miss one alarm. I didn't skip one day. I didn't have one day off. I still enjoyed my life, but I then realized at that point, if I put my mind to it, I can, I can get more out of it. You know, there's kind of a weird sensation to say, because all my life I worked for salaries. And then as a PT, I was limited by the amount of hours I was doing for once in my life. I realized that, it's my initiative that's going to determine how much I earn. Mm, I love that story. So take me forward then to the time when you started then to start realizing that your content was really making a difference or having an impact and increasing that audience. Did you, did you go from like 20, 30,000 up to a much bigger number very quickly? And were you, yes, I've got this. I know what I'm doing in your mind. Or were you just staggered by that as, as it happened at the time thinking, what on earth have I done? I don't know. You couldn't pinpoint it. It's interesting. In the early days, uh, I really enjoyed uh, this is I realized I was never going to be the in the best shape or have the most muscle. But 
I was one of the only people that could probably take a complex subject and make it kind of entertaining for people. Uh-huh. So when I started doing that, I realized that people are on social media, not just to be educated, but to be entertained. And if you can tread the water of both, then, you know, happy days. So I then got very inspired by the fact that I could listen to a very boring podcast from a very well-educated person. And I know that the people that follow me are never going to listen to this person. So I was like, every day I'm going to go for a walk, learn about something, put it into a podcast. And after getting into that, I was starting to get good reactions. I was listening to the right people. When I got to 100,000 on uh, Instagram, I remember I was in Ibiza. I kind of sat there on the edge of my bed with a bottle of champagne like, this is insane. This is insane. Because that was a lifetime goal that I put on that big bit of paper. I said, before I die, I'll have 100,000 followers. And it was about a year and a half later, and I'd already done it. Then this, you you would have spoken to Luke, my manager, uh, in arranging this podcast. Between 100,000 and a million, we messaged each other every time we grew by 1,000. Every single time. So that was a little celebration we had where we would race each other. So if it went to like 774, I'd message him going 774 and he'd be like, fuck, he's like, I've been up waiting for that. He's like, I'm watching the following go up. I was waiting for that so I could message you. And then when we got to a million, I'll be honest, the the million followers thing was, it was a bit hollow, but it's also very hard to comprehend. Mm -hmm. And over the years, this is my crass analogy that I'd use. No man should be assumptive what his girlfriend is into. And the best thing would be just to kind of ask. But where you can't ask your following what they want, you kind of have to put a blindfold on and just try out different things and monitor their reaction. So over the years since, I've tried being more educative, longer form, shorter form, uh, tried podcasts, tried reels, all of these things. I always feel like I've been very late to the party. But again, I quite like being late to things because it motivates me. And I said before I was hyper-competitive. Darren, my friend now, I show him accounts of people we don't like. And he goes, why are you sending me this? I go, they're doing better than you. And he goes, so what? I was like, mate, this is how I get out of bed in the morning. I look at people that I want to I want to dominate. They don't even know I exist. And they put fuel in my fire. They get me out of bed. Like they, I, I love it. And sometimes I get so caught up in that that I don't even realize what I'm doing. Now you say about it, does it feel real? Or, you know, the journey since. I think I've just got carried away. And every time I pip someone on that little leaderboard, I pick someone else. I'm like, right, he's he's getting it next. And um, yeah, I don't think it'll ever probably sink in or feel real. That's really interesting that you say that because a, a lot of people will think there's a, a crack team of people behind you that have uh, an execution strategy, a plan of attack, you know, that's, that's all got to be executed to get to that type of following. You're spending a lot of money on outreach, a lot of money on ads, that kind of stuff to grow that audience. But from what you're telling me, that hasn't really been the case. I've got a similar story of a lady called Erica Kohlberg, who's on TikTok. She's got 9 million followers on TikTok. And she started TikTok 18 months ago with a 30-day challenge from her friends. And she's a lawyer. And I said, to, so she was here in Dubai. I'm like, tell me what you've done. She said, look, there was a 30-day challenge. I just looked at everything. And I'm like, right, what's the most important thing? F- create content, not that gets comments, not that gets likes, but create comment that people share. Because if you create comment that people share, then you're going to be able to lead into everybody else's audience. And she said, so I just thought about that. And then I started making these videos. I'd never made them before. I was highly embarrassed about making them. And for 30 days, she made a video every day on TikTok. And by the end of that period of time, she had a good few thousand followers. I don't know what the exact number was. But she said, once I realized that the more people share stuff, the better it is for you, then I built my format out. She goes, I do it on my own, Spence. I am a lawyer. I do it on my own. And that's what I've done. And when I, when I look at you, it's like people don't want to know, James, that you tried different things. People don't want to know that you got it wrong. They don't want to know that you made mistakes. And they certainly don't want to know that you had 800 followers in your first year. They don't. That doesn't suit their narrative because they want to know that, that there was a shortcut that you found to getting there. Just, just for the benefit of everyone, did you find a shortcut? Is there a shortcut? Or is it just down to discipline, hard work, creativity, and keep trying? Yeah, I wish there was a shortcut, to be honest. And the, it's so crazy you say that because the content side of things, like uh, today I've made seven pieces of content uh, before the podcast. It's now it's now three o'clock. We started at 2 p.m. Um, 
and I I've I want to get tested for ADHD, but I haven't got like a severe case of it. And I think it's quite a trendy thing at the moment. So I don't mm -hmm. ever want to do people with genuine disservice. The you know I don't want to insult them by saying, oh, I think I've got your condition, but, but I have this real kind of issue where. I'm impulsive to the point that when I have an idea, I have to film it and I edit it straight away and I do it myself. There's, it's not time efficient for me to send it to someone and even professional uh, videographers and editors, I don't respect the speed they edit, it's too slow. So I will film an idea and it will be posted within 15 minutes and I do the captions myself, I do the edits myself. I taught myself how to use Premiere Pro a couple months ago. Um, so. It, with the content side of things, that's actually one of my most therapeutic processes of the day. I really enjoy being in a position where I can't relax if I don't do anything because my productivity is one of my strongest values that I kind of lean on. Mm -hmm. So I did some business-related tasks earlier. I then went into my TikTok and looked what people had tagged me in, and they served me up maybe 10, 15 trending videos that they know I disagree with, and they've actually served me the ones, and I pick the best one out of those to then react to. I've... Also then today, uh, the, the digital cameras in which I use, I've got two, maybe three now. I bought a new microphone for my uh, DSLR camera. Mm -hmm. And I went onto YouTube to look at the settings for what best to set it on. And then I realized that I was using it to find out more about the piece of equipment. So then I thought I should do a video on my exact technical setup I have for filming. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, Sorry. I can't do anything. To, I can't do anything today until I've done that. Then I then went down a rabbit hole of how to make my thumbnail on YouTube. I wanted the little white silhouette around it. So today I've learned so many things about not only the microphone that I'm using, I've learned about how to get the silhouette on the thumbnail. I've learned so many things about tasks that I should be delegating, but that little itching impulsive part of my mind can't stand waiting on people to get something out there. And I would rather post a post at midday that does worse than wait till 7 p.m. to post it at the optimal time. That is fascinating. Tell, tell me something though, because I, I really I really resonate with this. Let's say you really want to make that video, but you can't, for whatever reason, you can't make it and get it and done. Does it go into a place that never gets used again, as in you never go back to that idea or that concept or that video you want to make? or because other ones come along or do you sometimes go back and go find it and say, I still need to do that. I'll make a list on my phone. I'll often pull over my car when I'm driving. Cause I don't trust my mind to remember it. And then if I forget it and I remember that I've forgotten it, I never forgive myself. So if I then get home and go, what was that thing? It, I can't, people can't be around me at that point. Cause I'm so frustrated with myself. I used to wear a, a Garmin, especially during uh, the pandemic. And I had one of those like Phoenix 6S Pros, whatever. I My heart rate would go into rest and digest. Yeah, there it is, yeah. <laughs> you know when you, you have like the, the orange and the blue for your heart rate, whether you're in like a sympathetic, parasympathetic. When I edit, my heart rate drops and I go into the rest, the blue heart rate zone. So when I put myself into what for most people is a highly strenuous, cognitively draining exercise, for me, that actually relaxes me. That's a superpower. That's a superpower because that people don't have that. That is really unusual. I am. Um, I filmed uh, twenty gigabytes of filming in Turkey when I was there at the weekend with my friend, and I got to the airport and I said to him, "I'm going to edit this on the flight. It's a four-hour flight." I said to him, "Like, I'm really excited to spend the flight editing." I edited it before I boarded. I made like a a pretty high high edit vlog in the lounge in the hour. And my friends are like, how the, how the fuck did you edit that so quickly? But for me, it actually took up so much of my mind that I couldn't relax until I'd done it. And I was like, I just want to watch movies on the flight. I need to get the edit done. So it is a bit of a, a, bit of a superpower. And I get so caught up in that. And I suppose I came from a bit of, I used to love games when I was younger, like Call of Duty, anything. In the pandemic, I played a lot of Call of Duty. And um, I'm hyper competitive in that. I need to be putting something into that to i don't know i always need to be getting better in things tonight i'll be able to go to sleep knowing that i made seven pieces of content i did your podcast and i've got two hours of training later um i haven't got time to be ill today <laughs> oh man you, you, 
That's really fascinating. So everyone that's watching and listening to this right now that, that's been sitting here seeing someone like James that has built such a, a huge audience, think about this. He's doing this work himself. You know, Of course, I'm sure there's some support there in different parts, but he's doing the work. The bit that most of us hate the most, well, big percentage hate being in front of the camera and the other percentage hate editing. I hate editing more than you could possibly imagine. To me, what you're talking about is on that Garmin, my stress levels, my heart rate and everything goes up. I just get angry with it because I can't do it efficiently. So it's really interesting you say that. How does someone like you then, because the way your brain works, how do you, how do you create a work-life balance for yourself? So um, I actually had one of my first uh, employees this year. So five years into business, I hired someone and she works with me in the office in Sydney. And I've actually, uh, I want her to learn the way I like to edit. So to the point that she makes an edit for me and say I've got a podcast that's an hour and a half. I don't like chopping it up and making clips because it doesn't excite me because it's a project that I've already finished. Whereas new spontaneous content does. So she's very much got a value add there. I will then send her the edit. She'll send me the edit. I will then make it how I want. I'll send it back and I'll say, can you get it as close to this for the rest of them? But when it comes to work-life balance, uh, sleep is a big one. I love sleep. Uh, recently this week, I can sometimes sleep for nine or 10 hours. And that sounds really weird for like a lot of entrepreneurs, but I feel great when I sleep that long. Uh, I kind of have my no negotiables after about half 10. I've dated girls before where some girls are very active late at night mm. and they prefer to lay in in the morning. I wouldn't say I'm an early riser, but I'm that middle. I like waking up at seven. I like going to bed at half 10, maybe 11. If someone's not in that sleep cycle, I'm like, I can't date you because you have too much energy at night. Or mm. if it's the other way around and people are too energetic in the morning. So uh, sleep is a big one. But it sounds really crazy. I enjoy my work so much. I almost feel like I'm gaming all day in some respects with the content side of things. I look like I'm looking for high scores. Uh, I'm getting beaten in some respects. I'm finding motivation. And then there's the virtue side of it where I sit back and I feel like, oh, James, all you've done today is play your game but then I'll get emails about how my content is helping people or my academy is serving people, which I feel like a bit of a disconnect from it, especially with books. You write a book and people say, oh, your book's changed my life. And to me, that kind of was like a very well-paid diary that I'd written for a year. So uh, it's a very bizarre experience, but to be able to satisfy so many of my needs, and I think, I think my needs are quite primitive needs. And this is something I've only discovered this year, where I feel like if I was in a pack of, uh, you know, 200 adults in a tribe, I'd be the one that's like, let's go out hunting and let's bring back the biggest boar that we can or whatever it is, you know, that would be me. And then I'd see the, I'd see the other village with a bigger boar and I'd be like, lads, get your sticks. We're going back out. You know, I feel like there would have been such a great place for me in primitive society. And now I'm just trying to uh, accommodate my needs in the modern world. You're onto your third book. You're, how old are you now? Uh, 33. Do you like writing books? I love it to be honest, like, um, it is very calming for me as well to spend say an hour a day. And I say to people all the time, it's not actually that impressive to write a book. Like if I put a gun to your head or anyone's head and I said, here's unlimited coffee and you know, uh, you've got to research a topic for 15 minutes and then write your own thoughts about it. And we're going to collate and assimilate that after a year and put it together. That's not impressive. The impressive part is believing you can do it. Mm. And that's like a bit of a hippie thing to say, but you know, people can apply that to whatever, you know, they might not think they're capable to build a business, but if they're capable of working on something that could serve people or, you know, provide problems, whatever. Um, so yeah, I very much like it. Um, again, my manager, the same person who, uh, we used to message each other every time. Both of us are a bit batshit crazy in the sense that there's no one really crazy enough to go to Manchester to stay overnight when you've got an event in Cardiff the next day to sign 50 books at Waterstones, but we are. So when the book release came, we went to Manchester, signed the books, got the train to Bristol, signed books, did the event in Cardiff. Then at midnight, drove back to Bristol so we could fly to Newcastle to sign books before our event in Edinburgh. And like, no one really is that stupid enough to spend two, three thousand pounds to sign two, three hundred books. Like, we, we make about a pound a book. Mm. But that kind of batshit crazy mentality of that we love and so the book writing process isn't just uh the book it's not just the sales it's also that crazy period and 
the, the excitement of something being out of your hands, similar to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I don't decide when I get my next belt. I'm currently a purple belt. There's brown and there's black. It's subjective and it's based on the effort you put in and the appreciation of the people around you. The same goes with the book. I can't force people to buy it. And that excites me as well, where I really, I, I got the Sunday Times number one bestseller on this one, but I was prepared for it to go both ways. I was almost weirdly, I was okay with not getting it because I would be very excited to see what that would have done to my trajectory of other, other things I was working on. Mm. If, you know, so really enjoyed this last one. It was nice not to write about fitness. The second one's more about lifestyle values and work-life balance. This one was pretty much, if I was to summarize it in a minute, many people choose paths of inaction every day, whether they pussy out of talking up to their boss, taking responsibility at work, asking people out, telling people how they feel. And when you go through big periods of your life without ever taking the path of action, you need something, an umbrella, a guise, a mask to wear that excuses that fact. And people saying they're not confident is the perfect one. And I challenge people that really being or lacking confidence is maybe that is your personality trait, or maybe it's a bullshit excuse that you use to not take action. And the book is to inspire people to maybe challenge them on that and pick areas of their lives they could take more action. I mean, social media for a start, who hasn't fucking got Wi-Fi and a smartphone and an opinion? You know, like Twitter is all right for people because they hide behind it. But we're in a world where short form video content is king. The apps that caption your content are free. So many people are just picking an action. It's a very fair landscape that... Anyone with a few hundred pounds can very much compete in the big dog leagues of social media to get attention for their businesses. Mm, absolutely. Do you think that? Do you think that the book calls people out or gives uh, or gives them the tools? Uh, it does a bit of both. So first of all, I need to call people out to be like, look, there's 16 personality traits. Com confidence isn't one of them, uh, and to say to people like being more confident if you were to imagine a confident person they're happier they're more successful they're more comfortable they're better in relationships like all of these things like confidence is like a, a superpower in some respect then i give people little tools so now instead of seeing levels of confidence and personality or who they are i get them to see every interaction in life as a chance to take action or inaction but one of my favorite lessons from the book is that if you choose a path of inaction you open a loop mentally where if you didn't tell that person how you felt, you think about it all day. If that boss says, hey, does anyone fancy doing this task and you shy away from it and someone else takes it, that haunts you. Like people should be going through life trying to close these loops, not so much because they want to be more confident, but they want closure on these things. It's called the Zygarnik effect where waiters remember open tabs in restaurants better than they remember closed ones. The second someone pays for their tab, the mental computing that deals with that doesn't need to think about it anymore. But open tabs or tasks that are left unactioned are ones that take up stress. In some cases, it gives people insomnia. Did I lock the door? Whatever it is. So you need to go lock the door. But with things like confidence, I say to people in my talk, I'm like, this is about identifying these opportunities. And even if you are uncomfortable, just close the loop, get closure. Even if the girl says no to the date or your boss says, no, you're not experienced enough for this responsibility or you apply for a job and get shut down, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about, you know, going through life, whenever that opportunity arises, you, you take action on it. And again, like you were saying before, we don't set the expectations as being a successful outcome. When you were to do those sales pitches or those phone calls, really the second that dial, you hear the ring, you've accomplished what you wanted to accomplish. The outcome is a variable out of your control. So to say to people to think that way as well, if you put together a social media post and you post it, if you can take you know, satisfaction out of the process up until that point when it goes out it's really out of your hands mm. what kind of books do you read yourself this was an interesting one uh i i'm not going to slander them but i went to meet with penguin and harper collins uh when i wrote my first book and penguin were very surprised to the types of books and the amount of books that i'd read so um from lifestyle advice i like some of rolf de stuff art of the good life art of thinking clearly I like Mark Manson stuff. Uh, Ryan Holiday is one of my favorite mm. authors as well. Whenever anyone comes to me in turmoil, I send them to read Obstacles the Way. When my friends start to experience success, I send them to Ego is the Enemy, books that have all helped me through my uh, journey as well. 
Um, I got into a couple fiction books to try and help my uh, email marketing skills at some point. So there was a point that I was reading uh, Jack Reacher because the point of a fiction book is to get you to turn another page. So if you want to improve your sales copy, there's no better place than fiction books. I've just actually bought uh, a couple recommended to me. Uh, Think Again by Adam Grant. I've heard really good things about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I enjoyed War in the West recently, but I shouldn't be saying that to people by Douglas Murray. Um, so like they're a real mixture of stuff like from all over. And I've actually, I'm, I've never been too entrepreneurial minded. And I've actually just bought a bunch of entrepreneurs business books to see whether or not I would disagree with their values or not. So um, yeah, the, from the book side of things, I, I do like that. But I, do you know what? Podcasts are so good these days. My reading mm. has really been slammed because Rogan and Lex Friedman are putting out so many good episodes that the audiobooks are getting shunted to the side. Yeah, I think you're right about that. A lot of that happened. I mean, do you, are you audiobook or are you reading? Uh, I'm audiobook, but when I come out to Dubai, I've actually bought three physical copies, so I have something to do when I'm sat in the sun. Okay, well, there's lots of things you can do sat in the sun here. Okay. Um, <laughs> but so for me, it's like, the last book I actually picked up and read was one of Ant Middleton's books. I, I've been up Everest and so has he. So I read, I read that book and it felt good having the book in my hand. But most of the time I listen to audio books. When I, I, when I come back from the gym, I go for a walk every morning for an hour and that's when I listen or if I'm in the car. Uh, but you're right. Podcasts, there are so many great podcasts out there. There's people having really great conversations either with great guests or di- discussing really interesting subjects as well. So you like you like Joe Rogan's. You like Lex Friedman's. Any other any other podcast recommendations? Of course, your own. Uh, you know, no, like, I don't. Uh, mean. <laughs> with um with the Joe Rogan stuff, like I actually really like the variation of guests. And I actually just I can I actually fall asleep listening to podcasts as well. This is a strange one. I'm not sure many people do this, but I put a 15 minute sleep timer on because then I don't feel like I'm losing time. I feel like it's productive falling asleep time. Yeah. I can always rewind the next night if I fall asleep too soon. But it's at the point now where uh, my girlfriend's in Australia at the moment and she says, you should listen to this podcast. I'm like, what are you doing listening to Joe Rogan? She says that now for her to fall asleep, she puts it on if she can't sleep because it reminds her of staying with me. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so there's, I like that. I like the idea of absorbing information. And I definitely uh, absorb information better when I hear it. And since, since being self-employed, the last I, it's a strange thing I've said to people. I've said I would never have considered myself intelligent until I was about 25 or 26. My capacity to learn was awful at school. I was asked to leave school at 16. I got four GCSEs. But when I got a little bit older and I started doing things that I wanted, mm. suddenly this mental capacity to absorb and to learn was... You know, for people listening that probably got young kids who are little shits, we have the capacity for it if it's in the right medium. And it's annoying that at school we're all kind of, oh, learn this and write it down for an hour. That doesn't suit me as a person. And yeah, it's, it's one of those things where there's kind of a bit of a broken system with the way that we teach and we learn. But yeah, I love listening to podcasts when I'm in bed. It's all about learning stuff that you're interested in. I think. I think you know, whenever you're interested in something, you'll you'll lean towards it naturally. You know, look at your parents. My parents, they've got different areas of interest. My parents are just like yours. Wine, wine's open at midday, but my my dad knows everything there is to know about the history of golf. There's nothing he doesn't know about it. He can tell you everything about it, and anytime he can consume anything relating to that, you know, you lose you lose him in it. So I, I get what you mean. Look, it's been great having you on the show. Just let's get the dates clear for when you're here in Dubai. It's very soon. So where are you and when? Can you give me that? Yeah, I'm just going to double check. I'm pretty sure it's the Dubai Trade Center, 28th of October. Just let me... Yeah, Dubai Active Event. Yeah, it is 28th of October here in Dubai. So it's very, very close, just a couple of days away. Yeah, perfect. So, um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. And if anyone does see me out and about in Dubai, come over, say hello. Okay, just before we finish, just tell people what they're going to expect at the event. So just so they know what they're going to see. Uh, the Seaboard Live, I'm going to be bringing the most compelling areas of the book to life uh, in a way for people that read the book and want to understand it in a more jovial fashion. People that aren't going to read the book or people that 
want seven hours of learning over two hours uh, with a laugh and a bit of crass humor. Um, I'll give the show a, a 18 rating as well. <laughs> okay so the book is called how to be confident go and grab yourself a coffee james smith the author have a read of it and then make sure that you get onto the 28th and go and see james in person because he's a character that you won't want to miss james thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today i really appreciate your time and uh when you're here in a few days time i'll uh, love to buy you some lunch and uh show you a little bit about dubai that maybe you haven't seen so i can change your thinking and maybe get you to fall in love with the place again cheers thank you very much for having me Let's <laughs> go.